plan to do today is to give um, a broad brush, an, an overview of the ethical issues involving a potential duty to feed results back to research participants. I'm mainly focusing on genetic and genomic research, but there will be some background overall issues that would be applicable generally. So the things I'm going to talk about today is a little bit of background on the obligation to, or the alleged obligation to give feedback on ethical grounds and a little bit of legal issues as well. Some basic thinking on the ethical justification for feedback, a, a description of the state of, of the science about feedback, I've used science in the loose turn of the word, and a few suggestions from recent proposed ideas on how to take feedback policies forwards. Okay, so a little bit of the background. Generally, there's, um, there's an amazing trend in the last last uh, 15 years or so to return uh, research results back to participants. And there's a different terminologies, terms that are used um, to signify pretty much the same thing. So if you're doing a literature search trying to figure out different issues about feedback, these four terms are likely to, to be most relevant. Disclosure, return of results, feedback and notification of results to participants. And the overall background that I'm mainly interested in for this talk is the genomic research context. Two major features in this context are relevant to the obligation to feedback. There's a rapid accumulation of uh, vast amounts of information and there's, uh, there's an increasing availability of sophisticated research technologies, cheap and fast. And there's something else at the background uh, that may be changing a little bit the dynamics of why should it be feeding back to results, if at all, that the social context changes in terms of increasing expectations of access due to personal genomics and more consumer approaches to seeking out information about oneself. So there's different grounds and there's, there's lots of different issues, but I, I, would, I would like to just have a, a little bundle of pro and against arguments when it comes to uh, an ethical duty to feedback. The, the traditional standard was a non-disclosure and it's only in recent years that there's this ethical discourse of formulating policies that about um, establishing feedback obligations. And traditionally, a number of arguments against providing feedback had to do with the, the nature of the scientific endeavor itself, which is traditionally a very different approach to the clinical context by that I mean the, the quest for generalized knowledge as the objective uh, of research. That another one that's linked to, this, to the distinction between research and, and clinical practice, clinical care, is the, the, the need to avoid a therapeutic misconception if somebody is participating in a research project, there needs to be clear understanding that it, this is not happening in the context of a clinical, or clinical care. There's also arguments about the possible harm for feedback, and there's a lot of literature on, on, on the potential obligations uh, not to feedback at all. And that also pans out, that, mat that pairs with an ethical and a legal as well, and an ethical right not to know information that could be potentially harmful about oneself, which is an aspect of one's autonomy. Interestingly, autonomy can be used 50-50 in a way in terms of arguments pro, in support of giving feedback, in terms of personal choice, self-determination, being able to get access to information about oneself. Another strong argument in favour of feedback is this idea of 
treating persons as something more than a means to an end, and that ties with this principle for respect of persons, which is, goes back to autonomy. There's more uh, recent thinking about what reciprocity means, this idea of giving something back, the participation of, part of, of persons in in research and this understanding that they're contributing to research and research will not be able to be pursued unless participation of, of persons was possible. And another argument is this idea of trust, the need for trust and communication that is possibly served and enhanced by returning feedback. There's a bit of an uncertainty and possibly a lack of consensus overall about a number of aspects I'm going to talk about. One is the, the nature and the extent of the duty to feedback. A key feature of that is, are we talking about a routine duty, an obligation at all times, or some consideration to disclose results? I will talk a, a, more about the types of results in a minute, but I'm trying to kind of have a general frame of how the obligation, the duty to feedback is conceived overall in the ethical discourse. So if I'm being uh, at all unclear or too, too high level, just interrupt. Another critical distinction when it comes to the, the extent and the nature of the duty is um, whether this duty is a proactive duty on the part of the researcher to offer feedback opportunities to the participants, or are we talking about a passive response to a request? This is quite important in terms of the legal landscape, and I'll talk about that at the end a little bit, but because there's different rights that could be involved uh, according to what legislation already allows. So I'm, I guess I'm just kind of flagging a one obvious point of difference when we try to contrast that kind of legal thinking about feedback. So there's a little bit of a confusion in the ethical literature because often this idea of the contrast between offer and request is not being made clear uh, and, and that could have implications for, the, for expectations on the part of participants. So for the purposes of what, I'm, what we're talking about today, I'd, li I'd like to, to stay with the idea of feedback as an offer from the researcher to the participants, not in kind of benevolent sense, but just in, in pragmatic sense. It's, it's an offer, it's not something that is a response to a request. That was my idea of an offer, broadcasted wide open wide. But another distinction to make that raises quite a bit of uncertainty in the, in the discourses, disagreement rather than uncertainty, is that there's different types of results and different types of research that are involved when we're thinking about feedback. So talking about feedback and results, these two core terms that I'm trying to unpack a little. You may very well know that this a broad commitment. Traditionally, most policies about um, feedback allow feedback for aggregate result, uh, results. It's a broad commitment to wide dissemination to the community more generally. And we're also talking about individual results, which is a much more narrowly qualified situation. I'll talk about that later. This there's quite a bit of literature on it, and this is something that came out a couple of days ago. My colleague Paula brought it, uh, brought it to my attention yesterday. And that's possibly a question for open discussion later. The traditional boundaries between feedback aggregate results and feedback individual results are being blurred in genomics and genome-wide association studies. So bearing in mind that distinction, but at the same time that the traditional boundaries are being possibly transgressed or are definitely shifting. Another crucial distinction is the research findings, as opposed to incidental findings, feeding back research results as part of the purpose of the study, what the, the, the study was being set up to do, and quite a bit of guidance, as I'll explain in, in a short while, focuses on research findings. Uh, there's guidelines for the obligation to disseminate results from the, from the project, or from a project. And these can be different kinds of 
data and the different kinds of information that may be relevant. So it's not an, a homogenous type of communicating to a person or to a group. And an emerging discussion, is, uh, especially in genomics and genomics, uh, genomics, genome-wide associated studies, is the issue of what to do with incidental findings. So it's aggregate individual boundaries are being blurred. And I'm guessing that everybody is pretty much familiar with what an incidental finding is, yet I think it's useful to just bear in mind recent definitions and the two core things. It's a finding concerning an individual research participant that has potential health or reproductive importance and is discovered in the course of conducting research but is beyond the aims of the study. And as I mentioned before, there's a number of guidelines that are being developed for feeding back uh, research findings and in very recent literature about what to do with incidental findings is mentioning that well lots of these guidelines are pretty much relevant to incidental findings as well so there's possibly another blurring of boundaries there as well as to um, that's also a question for me to by scientist colleagues for discussion a third issue that there's disagreement about in the ethical literature is the reliability of, res of uh, results, of research results. And that pretty much debates whether finding is significant and the criteria upon which the, sig the significance of this finding will be assessed. So there's different types of significance. It could be a serious, clinically relevant, it could be some other type of relevance or recreational relevance, something else to the participant. And to what, to what um, extent these different degrees matter when we're considering an obligation to feedback. A second crucial element in assessing significance is whether a medical intervention is available, whether a condition we're talking about is treatable or not. And, and the first two, the, the serious, seriousness of the condition and the availability of medical treatment, are highlighted in many guidance documents when considering individual feedback of individual results. Some literature also mentions a third option, the benefit to the patient, which is to be distinguished from, from the previous two in, in a more general sense, uh, and I'd like, I would welcome some um, thinking on that. Benefit to the patient to the extent that even if no medical treatment is available, is there still, to the extent that if information to the patient would be, would be of relevance in, term, in terms to prepare, depends on how much time is, is left, depending on the, series, or the seriousness of the disease, is there some other consideration there apart from the first two that we could be thinking about? And there, there may be some analysis in legal cases that highlights this, this idea to be comfortable and preparing that would only be possible with knowledge of the result. Another issue in, in assessing reliability is the, the availability of standards for evaluation. And I found Zach Cohen's article quite uh, useful because he discusses reliability and he also discusses proportions for false positives. And overall, it's this idea of, of difference between research and, and clinical care, the different the possibilities for evaluation, the level of evaluation that happens at the research stage, at different stages of the research, and the availability of accreditation certification for assessing validity and utility in a clinical context. So to what extent reliability, if I'm a researcher, to what extent am I able to, to assess and evaluate how to communicate and what I'm supposed to do further, what different steps should I be taking or could I take? And 
third, again, I mentioned it at the beginning, the social context, is that this kind of change in the social context that may be asserting some kind of influence on the types of preferences that patients may have, or research participants more generally may have, in terms of access to information about themselves, however relevant or health, relevant to their health it may be or not. From these ideas about obligation to feedback, being able to evaluate to what extent and what feedback, understanding what, what is at stake, is this notion of responsibility and who is responsible to disclose the findings. Uh, it could be a number of people, how is this decided, the guidance is not necessarily clear. Um, it could be a researcher, it could be the clinician, it could be somebody who is trained as a counsellor. And there's an additional discussion to, to be Consider to is to whom to disclose. Uh, is it just the individual patient? Is it other third parties, family members? Could be again the clinician as a gatekeeper. So overall, I'm going to jot down four core issues, open issues that I, I feel could help discussion. One question is general: What should a researcher do when they uncover a finding that may have health implications for a participant or the participant's family members? In the case of incidental findings, what if the finding is unrelated to the research to which the participant has consented? Number three is what are the responsibilities to communicate this information to the participant and all the clinician? And a question of guidance, what guidance is available to all these different stages of research stakeholders, all these different types of, sorry, of um, research stakeholders, to ethics review, to researcher, to participant, both when they plan for such situations and while they make decisions about feedback. There's, um, there's a number of guidance about research find of communicating research findings that, as I mentioned, is also relevant to communicating incidental findings. And that this guidance has is been alluded to in, in documents that discuss incidental findings and how to deal with them. And possible ways forward in a number of documents now, comparing at, uh, about 10 documents in this field and they're all in the, in the last year. There's a general consensus on the need to establish management pathways. Examples of those could be we need to develop guidelines so that we are able to assess the likelihood of uh, revelation of a clinically relevant information. Another example of what a management pathway could be helping with is policies about validity and return different levels of certification, it's about evaluation. Another, another way to deal with uh, managing incidental findings is generally building more opportunities for participants to know or not to know those findings. E examples could be use the, the informed consent process and form, and indicate and justify whether the findings, uh, whether research findings or incidental findings will be disclosed, if at all. If they're not to be disclosed, justify why. Another example is with plans to release aggregate data, it will, there's, there's a need to, to use plain language as opposed to technical newsletters and technical reports. So make it more intelligible and more approachable. Another idea in terms of forward steps is making sure that uh, communication of results is kind of pretty straightforward. Communication of results is, is being done with the help of a trained professional in genetic counselling. <laughs> and overall, there's, there's a consensus that it's about time to set up national task forces and working groups to develop policies, because policies are not there. So as a summer, I talked about, as it's a broad brush, view that there's a lot of variation in opinion on, on the ethics, or, or the ethical arguments and that the, the debate is happening pretty much at the ethical level, at the ethical sphere, and talking about a, different, a duty that could be something that's a, a consideration or an obligation, and how is this to be assessed. 
I talked about the different types of research results uh, and the difference within incidental findings and how the boundaries are being blurred a little bit. Issues of reliability in research, issues of responsibility, and because of this difference between ethics and law, this seminar is not focused on discussing legal aspects of feedback in the UK. This idea of um, to what extent there's a legal obligation of the, for, for the researcher to feedback results. One way of looking at it is through um, a, a tort, a common law duty of care. There is a precedent that there is an equivalence between the research context, uh, the therapeutic research context, and the clinical doc context in, in the sense that how the relationship between the participant and the researcher could be akin to a doctor-patient relationship, dating back to a um, CJD case in 1996. But at the same time, this case considers therapeutic research, and it's not clear as to what would happen in the case of a more removed research in, in the types of genomic research that we're talking about in, in large-scale projects. So overall, uh, this issue of, issue of establishing proximity remains pretty much a grey area for us. That's why I keep saying that there's no guidance, there's some speculation, there's, it's pretty much great. There's not enough case law, there's no statute, and there are no guidelines. There's other possibilities as well. A couple of these possibilities are, are coming from the, from the human rights in European, uh, from the incorporation of the Convention of Human Rights into UK law, the Human Rights Act. And there have been a few cases that discussed this positive obligation of the public authority to, to avoid risks of loss of life or serious harm. The Osman case, in the case of a police activity that did not prevent a murder that could have been prevented. In, there's also the right to private life under Article 8 of the Convention and how this relates to an access request because in, in privacy laws there is um, space for, there is a right to act for, for an individual to ask for the best, for, for, to access their personal information. <coughs> The, the KNH in the Slovakian case had to do with sterilization of, of mass sterilization of, of females who were asked to get their um, to get access to their effective to fertility treatment uh, data. Uh, and I'm just throwing it into the pot just to remember that we're talking about uh, we're not just talking about individuals in this type of research. We're talking about implications for family relatives and. <coughs> There are issues there in terms of how would the law um, deal with the obligation to, to feed back to a relative. And there is more case law in the US, still in a limited way, it's a duty to warn the patient. There's a duty to, to warn from, from the researcher's perspective, a duty to warn the patient of the risk, or just warn them so that they can inform others. So it's a very limited right, and I'll just stop here in terms of, of legal thinking. 